Well, cuddle up to the person next to you. It's good to be together. Here we go. (laughs) If you have to wear your jacket, that's fine. I was thinking of wearing mine, so this should be up close and personal at Jerusalem Church. All right. Well, sometimes life doesn't make sense. Uh, Pain and suffering can be really difficult to reconcile with the thought of a good and a loving God. On May 21st, 1956, my grandfather, Louis Good, died of leukemia at the age of 38, leaving behind a wife and four young daughters under the age of 14. My grandmother never remarried, and I worked most of her life. My mom still sheds tears over the memories. Sometimes life doesn't make sense. My mom's younger sister, Carolyn, married James Weaver back in the 70s. When my Uncle Jim and Aunt Carolyn were still in their 20s, really young, scar tissue on Uncle Jim's back uh, became cancerous, and my Uncle Jim suffered a lot, and he died due to complications from his skin cancer. He left my Aunt Carolyn um, behind to care for my two cousins, Corey and Allison, who were at, uh, at the time ages four and two. My mom recalls the four sisters weeping together after Jim died. Uh, it seemed too familiar. Uh, sometimes life doesn't make sense. My cousin Allison, after losing her father to skin cancer, became a teenager and fell in love with Fred, a strong and athletic guy. They were eventually married. They eventually had two beautiful children together. In his late 20s, while the two children were quite young, I think around ages four and two, Fred woke up one morning and had trouble getting dressed. And it was unsettling, and so they headed to the hospital, and within three days, Fred was gone. A brain tumor and aggressive leukemia took, took Fred's life. Sometimes life doesn't make sense. Life is confusing. We have questions. Sometimes God answers our prayers with a clear and distinct no. And we're left wondering why. Despair seems one breath away unless, unless God has a purpose, a purpose that will somehow, somehow turn out for our good. God tells us in Ephesians 1.11 that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Folks, God has a plan and we can draw comfort and we can draw hope by trusting in God, God's sovereign goodness. Believing that God will weave everything, and when I say everything, I mean absolutely everything together for His greatest glory and our greatest good. Comfort and joy in affliction are obtained only by trusting that God is good, that God has a plan and will make sense of absolutely everything in time, in the end. After talking with my mom about the loss of three generations of men in our family, this is what my mom said, but look how faithful God was through it all. Look how faithful God was through it all. Life may not always make sense, but one thing is always absolutely true. God is faithful, and we must believe that. John 11 is poignant. John 11 is powerful. And for the next few weeks, we're going to park in this glorious chapter. And we're going to see uh, mainly two things emerge. Number one, the extravagant love of God. 
the extravagant love of God. And number two, God is more loving to manifest His glory to you through affliction than to merely give you temporal and temporary safety and comfort. God is more loving to supply for you what you need in the middle of affliction than what He would be if He just gave you a comfortable life and everything was honky-dory. And that's all that He gave. And I want you to see that there is something more glorious, something more desirable than a comfortable life that always makes sense. Here's the point. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you and therefore wants you to experience and enjoy the glory of God more than everything else. Isn't it often affliction that urges us to cling to Christ? The tough times And if so, then affliction serves a glorious purpose to urge us to find transcendent joy and solace in Christ. Pain for the purpose of greater pleasure. Suffering for the purpose of greater satisfaction. Heartache for the purpose of greater happiness. Well, the Jews in Jerusalem, they wanted Jesus dead. So he headed to a small town that was across the Jordan Um, many miles from Jerusalem. It was called Bethany, not to be confused with the Bethany that was two miles from Jerusalem. There were two Bethanies. And many people believed uh, in Jesus there in Bethany. And then the troubling news came, their beloved friend Lazarus had become really, really ill. John 11 begins this way, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. The village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Life gets tough. And so we cry out to God. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were all from Bethany near Jerusalem. John mentioned Mary in verse 2, the anointing uh, that Mary did of Jesus' feet, which identifies the family. It tells us something about who they were, but the event doesn't happen until the next chapter, which we're going to see in chapter 12. John's readers may have been familiar with what Mary did to Christ, or he might have been foreshadowing something to come. Either way, John piques the interest of his readers draws them into the story by, by showing how close Jesus was to this family, how he loved them. Well, Lazarus was really sick, enough for the sisters to send word to Jesus. They feared their brother's life and they wanted Jesus to know. Verse 3 is literally, Lord, behold, he whom you love is ill. Behold, look, see, listen, Jesus, our brother is sick. Well, they sent their urgent message to Jesus knowing that Jesus would care, and Jesus did care. He cared deeply. We're going to see that as we we progress. And let me ask you this. Have any of you ever had loved ones very close to you become really ill? I mean really ill. Now, you may know how this feels. You may know what it feels like to fear and to have anxiety, and to have great concern over someone that you love is ill, and you're not seeing a way out of it. You know what it's like to cry out to God, wanting Him to heal. 
Mary and Martha knew Jesus could heal their brother. They believed that. But Jesus wasn't there. Jesus was miles away. Jesus wasn't with them. His, his presence wasn't there. And, and so they sent word. And, and notice that they didn't demand anything. And they didn't even really ask him to do anything. They just wanted Jesus to know. And I think they wanted Jesus in their heart. I think they wanted Jesus to come and to show up and to heal and if you look later at verses 21 and 32, it seems to suggest that, that what was, that's what was on their heart. Life gets tough, so we cry out to God. When life doesn't make sense, God's love is easy for us to forget, to, to miss that He does in fact love us. Yet His love is steadfast. He cares for you. His plan is good. We fight hopelessness by knowing and believing the promises of God. We meditate on the promises of God in Scripture and we plead with Him in prayer. We fight uncertainty with faith. So every word of John 11 is significant. Every every word works to uncover the glory of God which helps you make sense of suffering. Even suffering is for the glory of God. Even suffering. Intense pain, affliction is for the glory and majesty of God. Back in John 9, Jesus said the blind man was born disabled so that the works of God might be displayed in him. His congenital blindness and years of suffering were for the glory of God. His suffering was meaningful. Christ healed him, but even more, Christ saved his soul, giving him his utmost gladness in him, which was more than giving him 20-20 vision. And I want you to see, I want you to look at verse 4, and I want you to see the wonder of it. It could change how you understand God. It could change your whole approach And understanding his infinite love for you, it says, but when Jesus heard it, and that was referring to the heartbreaking report of Lazarus' illness, Jesus responded like this, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Lazarus' terminal illness would not lead to final death. That would not be the end of the story. It served a greater purpose to display the glory of God through this serious illness. The illness existed to glorify Jesus Christ, the Son of God, through it to emblazon Christ's sovereign power, splendor, and majesty. This truth, if you believe it, can bear abundant fruit in your life. Now, this truth doesn't eliminate affliction. It doesn't take it away. It doesn't take away the pain that is felt through affliction. But it does do this. It unearths for you the meaning of affliction. Affliction has purpose and meaning for God's people to showcase the glory of God through affliction. Now, I'm left asking a question. Why didn't Jesus just say the word and heal Lazarus from afar? That's what he did with the official son in John 4. And I think the answer is because the greatness of God would be showcased 
And Jesus would be glorified through resurrection, not healing. Through resurrection, not healing. And the faith of his disciples would intensify through this whole situation. Now, there are so many dangerous views out there on disease and disability, like prosperity theology or the word of faith movement or faith healing, which essentially strip God of his sovereignty along with God's glorious purpose in suffering. Bad theology weakens faith. We guard against these dangerous views by knowing and believing our Bibles and verses like John eleven four, 4, which say something to us. So if God is not sovereign and there is no purpose in suffering, how do you make sense of John 11? How do we make sense of Romans eight twenty eight? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. If God is not sovereign, And suffering is not part of his glorious plan. How do we make sense of Job or the life of Christ or the life of Paul or persecution of millions and millions of Christians? How do we make sense of martyrs? How do we make sense of Romans 5, 3 through 5, which says to rejoice in our suffering? Or 2 Thessalonians 1, 5, which says we suffer for the kingdom of God. Or 2 Timothy 1.8, which says, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. How do we make sense of the suffering of God's people throughout all of redemptive history? Hear this loud and clear. God isn't malicious to decree affliction. God is love. God is love. God is most loving to reveal His glory and glorify His Son for us through suffering. This illness was for the glory of God. Please see the point. The love of Jesus is more than our immediate safety and comfort. The love of Jesus is much, much more than our immediate safety and comfort. And I want to know, is that true? Is that biblical? Is Jesus better than earthly prosperity? That's a fair question. Many people would say no. No. They would rather have immediate safety, immediate comfort, immediate pleasures and prosperity than to enjoy eternal pleasures in Jesus Christ. Money and health, they happen to be the quintessential pleasures of safety and comfort, and they are elusive. Back in 2002, Jack Whitaker from West Virginia won the Powerball for around $315 million, which at the time was the largest single-ticket sum won in American lottery history. He chose the cash option over the annuity option and received a check for over $113 million after taxes. Now, it might surprise you that Whitaker's net worth before winning the lottery was $17 million. He was rich already. After winning, Whitaker carried around hundreds of thousands of dollars in a briefcase. And when asked why, he said, because I can. That was his answer. 
Whitaker's excesses eventually killed his marriage. Within a year of winning, thieves broke into his car at a strip club and they stole his briefcase containing, I kid you not, $545,000. Within a year of winning, he was nailed with a DUI. Within a year of winning, an 18-year-old boyfriend of his granddaughter was found dead in his home from a drug overdose. Within a year of winning, his granddaughter was found dead wrapped in a tarp and dumped behind a junk van. Whitaker was even sued by a casino for bouncing checks totaling $1.5 million. Within five years of winning, Whitaker's bank accounts were mainly empty. He said, quote, I wish I'd torn that ticket up. End of quote. Whitaker is still working. He's 68 years old. And he's still hoping to win the lottery again. He spends $600 on lottery tickets every week. Can you see why Hebrews 11.25 uses the phrase fleeting pleasures of sin? Fleeting. They're here for a moment. They're, they're sweet for a moment and then bitter is the taste. They don't last. King Solomon deprived himself of no worldly pleasure. He had it all and he said, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. Solomon said, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. The love of Jesus is more than immediate prosperity. Being healthy, that also feels pretty safe and comfortable sometimes. But it too is elusive. Jim Fix wrote the best-selling book, The Complete Book of Running. He contributed much to the growth of running here in America and uh, was among, really, probably one, one of the, the great health gurus, okay? Jim Fix ran 10 miles every day, among other really rigorous exercises, and was in great shape. And then one day while jog jogging, Jim had a fatal heart attack and died, and Jim was 52 years old. The safety and comfort and pleasure of the world are vacillating and uncertain. They are momentary pleasures, my friends, but there is a pleasure that transcends time. Now, would you consider this point? It's a long point, so I printed it right in there for you, but please consider this. Please think about this. God loves you more than to simply bless you with temporal and temporary pleasure derived from your immediate safety and comfort, but desires to give you exclusive and eternal pleasure experienced only through delighting in His glory above temporal and temporary pleasure. God loves us most when He works through even affliction to reveal to us His glory of His sufficiency and His sovereignty and His supremacy. God loves you so much and is so powerful. He can take bad things and work them into good things for you. He can work them for your joy in Him. Do you trust God to take your pain and produce greater pleasure in Him? Do you trust God to take your suffering and to produce through your suffering greater satisfaction in Him? Do you trust that God can take your heartache and turn that into greater happiness in Him? Do you trust God? This is the fight of faith. Faith is trusting God when life doesn't make sense. 
Now, if you believe that God's love only translates into making you happy, healthy, and wealthy now, then you will find Jesus in John 11 vindictive and cruel. Because if temporary pleasures are all this is, then Jesus is just working some weird plot to just inflict pain on people. But if you see deeper and you see something different than that, that that it's all about God's glory, then you're going to see something profound in John 11. If you understand that the glory of God is the most loving gift that God could give, to experience Him, then John 11 will take you deeper into God's extravagant and lavish love for you. Even if He has chosen to give you a bitter providence. While you're here, Psalm 63, verse 3 is profound. As a refugee, a man on the run, David wrote these words to God Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. As confusing as it is sometimes, life can be so confusing. Life is a precious gift from God. And the steadfast love of God happens to be better than the gift of life itself. David could write Psalm 4, verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. He could write that because God's joy is a superlative joy. More than the success and grain and wine and possessions and living the good life. More than that, God puts superlative joy in our hearts because we have him. So let's try to make sense of these verses. Look at John 11, verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus deeply loved them. The sisters knew that, verse 3. Lord, he whom you love is ill. So they knew it. They knew Jesus loved. John wants John wants you to recognize how deep the Father's love is, how how much Jesus loves them and you, so that you look at these verses and you, you look through the love of God as you understand the meat of these verses. Verse six says this, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. What? Wouldn't you go immediately? To see your friend who is sick? Jesus didn't. His disciples must have been a little puzzled, but they also must have been a little bit relieved because if they head back to Lazarus, they're going right back in to where everybody wants, not everybody, but a lot of people want Jesus dead. Judea was a dangerous place, and maybe they wanted them dead too. So you have to really think about verse 6. The word so... It's a little word, but it's powerful. Or therefore, in verse 6, connects it back to verse 5. He loved them, therefore he stayed two, two more days. He didn't go. The reason why Jesus stayed two more days and didn't go to Lazarus immediately was because he loved them. He loved the family. Do you find that odd? I think you should be somewhat scratching your head wanting to know what that means and why he would do something like that, all right? Wouldn't love compel Jesus to go immediately? And the answer is yes, that would be loving if he went, but it wouldn't display the greatest love. 
Jesus wanted to display the glory of God through the loss and grief of his friends so that they would experience a greater love and joy in seeing the glory of God more fully in him. God was developing something glorious that Mary and Martha and and Lazarus couldn't see at the time. Jesus allowed Lazarus to die for the purpose of demonstrating unrivaled power and love to strengthen the faith of his friends. John Piper said, quote, love lets him die because his death will help them see in more ways than they know the glory of God, end of quote. Their their suffering would lead them to see the glory of God. Now, if God answers your prayer with an unwanted no, no, you may not have that. It does not mean, church, that he hates you or that he's against you or that he's cruel. Every painful no of God is loving and serves to strengthen your faith and joy. After the two days, verse 7 reports that Jesus told his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And at that point, you're like, uh-oh, you don't want to do that. That's, not, that's going into hostile territory, Jesus. The last time they were in Judea, the Jews tried to murder Jesus in the middle of Hanukkah in the temple. This is not a friendly scene. Going back was dangerous. And so they replied, verse 8, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Why head back to Judea where people want you dead? Why not stay here where people are believing in you, where you have a successful ministry? Well, his mission was to showcase the glory of God. Verses 9 and 10. Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, I'll be honest with you. I find that hard to understand. I'm not 100% sure what Jesus is trying to say there. What I think Jesus is saying is this. There are 12 hours in the daytime. And there are 12 hours in the nighttime. This is a fixed reality. Nothing can change that. God's will and God's purpose are also fixed and unchangeable. God ordained that Jesus would return to Jerusalem and Lazarus' resurrection would escalate the vitriol, the hatred leading to Christ's death. Jesus walked in the light of God's will for him. Nothing could derail him. And if in the center of God's will, one cannot fall. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. Jesus knew he had to return to Jerusalem. Jesus knew he had to be hated. Jesus knew he had to go to the cross. And all this was was fueling and leading up to this triumphant moment in the cross. But I don't think the disciples understood. Jesus doesn't always appear to make sense. Jesus doesn't always appear to make sense. I use the word appear carefully because Jesus always makes sense. Jesus always makes sense. He is divinely logical, divinely reasonable. However, Jesus is complex, and sometimes he appears bewildering to us. We look at him and we're like, I don't get this. This makes no sense. I think we've all been there. 
His parables need explanation. His countercultural life needs explanation. The messianic prophecies about him need explanation. You really need to study his life and think to understand Jesus or else you'll miss where he's going in Scripture. You need the Holy Spirit of truth to make sense of Jesus. You can't naturally just look at the life of Jesus and it just makes sense. Not if you're paying attention. You need the Holy Spirit in you to help make sense of Jesus. Now to verses 11 through 14. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Jesus said, our friend Lazarus. They all love Lazarus. He was close to all of them. When Jesus said that he had fallen asleep and that he would go awaken him, the disciples weren't tracking with that. Lazarus was sick. He needed rest. Okay, if, if he slept, he would wake again, Jesus. You don't need to go and wake Lazarus up. He'll be okay. He'll recover from sleep. The disciples didn't catch his euphemism. Think of it this way. An old farmer liked to do things the old-fashioned way. And so when he milked his cows, he used an old school bucket to milk his cows. And so, sure, it took longer. You know, it didn't have the, the technology of, of everything that we have today, but he liked to do it the hard work. You know, he liked to work hard and to do it the old way. And so one day when the old farmer was milking uh, his cow, he was sitting on a stool and milking his cow, he, he kicked the bucket. Now, was that little story disappointing or tragic? He kicked the bucket. Disappointing or tragic? What did you hear? Did he spill the milk or did he die? Euphemisms complicate things. The disciples heard Jesus say that Lazarus had fallen asleep. Right? Makes sense. He's sick, Jesus. He might need a little shut-eye to recover. All right? No need to go. No need to rush and wake the guy. But falling asleep was a euphemism for death. Sometimes in the Old Testament, sleep was used to describe death, and that's what Jesus meant. Lazarus was dead. He told the disciples plainly, and then it sunk in. Lazarus is dead. He's not coming back. He's not going to recover. Dead, dead. Jesus knew the exact moment of Lazarus' death. He, he wasn't there. No one told him. He knew because he is God. He knew because he is God. He knew because he walked in the light of God's sovereign will. Now, hadn't Jesus said back in verse 4, if you're paying attention here, this illness does not lead to death. If Lazarus is dead, his illness did lead to death. What did Jesus mean? This little Greek preposition pros means unto or, or it can even mean for the purpose of. His illness was not unto or for the purpose of death, but rather to reveal the glory of God. Death wasn't the conclusion to the story. Did you catch that Jesus didn't mention resurrection the second time? He said, Lazarus had fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And if fallen asleep means death, then awaken him means resurrection. Lazarus was temporarily dead. Jesus would bring him back, but Jesus never repeated that. 
He only said Lazarus has died. And I wonder if the disciples in that moment just missed, missed what was happening, what he meant by I will go awaken him. Maybe because of the full brunt of bearing that Lazarus was indeed dead. Then Jesus said something that would have been hard to understand. Jesus said, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. So that you may believe, but let us go to him. So in the middle of all of the emotion of the moment, you hear your good friend is dead You've got to be crying. I mean, I don't know what they were doing, but that's an emotional moment. They found out that Jesus was glad that he wasn't there when Lazarus died and that they were headed back into hostile territory. That's a lot to take in all at once. And they could not see what Jesus saw. He was sovereignly working for their good. He would build their faith by blowing their minds. And he was loving them actively. Sometimes Jesus appears to make very little sense. Sometimes terrible things happen and they appear meaningless, haphazard, random. They leave you with lasting scars that go deep. These things are painful. They're so difficult to forget It's so difficult to forgive, but you must understand that Jesus loves you. The Father loves you through affliction. His desire is to show you something glorious about himself and to increase your confidence in him. That's the most loving thing that God could do. The Bible helps us to know how to trust Jesus when life doesn't make sense. When you look at your life and you're like, that makes no sense That was the worst thing that ever happened in my life. No, I'm not over it. How do you make sense of that? What's going to get you through? You know, Thomas, he always gets a bum rap because of of his doubt. But here Thomas is somewhat inspiring. The disciples knew that going back into Judea was really dangerous and, and people wanted Jesus dead and there was risk associated with that and the disciples felt anxious, I'm sure. And Thomas, who was a twin, um, that's what, uh, is it Didymus? Didymus, is that what the word is? I'm not looking at it right now, but whatever it is, that means twin, okay? He stepped up and he addressed the group and he said this, let us also go that we may die with him, referring to Christ. Is that not an awesome statement? Let us go with him and we're going to die with him. Thomas certainly wasn't looking on the bright side, but um, we're all going to die. I mean, that's whatever. But you've got to give him props for being completely courageous and loyal to Jesus. Let us also go that we may die with him. He was willing to die with Jesus And I guess one of the most basic ways to trust Jesus when life doesn't make sense is number one, be willing to endure even death to be with Jesus. If you trust Christ enough to die with him, doesn't the rest fall in place? Right? Doesn't it fall in place if you love Jesus that much that you'll die with him? Number two, always, always, always believe that Jesus loves you. No matter what, faith is trusting that Jesus actually loves you. Don't believe Satan's lies that suffering is God's hatred or cruelty to you. 
If you love Christ, then believe that God loves you, that he wants the best for you. That's John 16, 27. He delights in you. He rejoices over you. That's Isaiah 62, 4 and 5. Believe it. Number three, when life doesn't make sense, believe that God is working everything for his glory and your utmost joy in his glory. God is just that powerful. God is just that good to take ugly and make beautiful. And I think we all really like beautiful. Number four, trust that your affliction has great meaning. It's not emptiness. It has meaning. If you love God, none of your suffering is without purpose. Number five, understand that life doesn't need to make sense for God to be good. God is God. We are not. We don't know what God is uh, doing. We don't know all that God knows. So trust Him. That's what faith is. I don't know what you're doing, God. This feels really painful right now. But I'm going to trust that you know what you're doing, that you love me, and that you are good. God is eternally good. That's what faith is. It's trusting in that. Psalm 100 verse 5 says, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. That, that goodness and that faithfulness is for you. That's yours in Christ. Number six, believe that whatever God does to build your trust in Him is best for you. Jesus said, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? You know, it's really quite easy. Trust God. Now, that's hard to do, but it's easy to understand. Trust God. Faith is believing that God is working for your good even in your affliction. Life doesn't always make sense. We all know that. But it doesn't have to make sense when you have a sovereign and good God that loves you and wants the best for you. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. And we look to you. And we cry out to you in times of trouble and affliction. I know there's people uh, sitting here today that are going through some very difficult things. Suffering. I know there's people here that have terrible memories of things that happened to them. And when they look at that, that might be the very reason that they doubt you. But I pray that this morning you turn that around and make it the very reason they trust you. Because you can take suffering and affliction and pain and heartache and turn that into joy and satisfaction in you, God. That is amazing grace. Bad things have happened in my life, God, and I can see your hand, maybe not with everything, but, but with a bunch of things, how your hand of grace was working to my good. And God, I know all of us here have received a very difficult to swallow no from you. And we wonder why. Because we don't know what you know. And I pray that you increase someone's faith 
this morning that you are a good God that loves and that even those no's that don't make sense work for our good if we love you, if we trust you, if you are our primary pleasure. You see, God, we tend to value the things of this earth most. And if we do, all of them can leave us and will leave us. And then what are we left with if we don't know you? We're left with nothing. But if we know you and we love you, even if everything of this world is stripped away, we still have everything because you, God, are everything. You give us a joy that that cannot be stolen from us, that cannot be taken. It never rusts. It never corrodes. And so, God, thank you for your son who is a gift that keeps giving forever through eternity and will never, ever be taken. My, how you love us. So, God, work for your glory and our greatest good through even our affliction. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.